Super Talk Mississippi media production. And now it's Coast View with Ricky Matthews. Brought to you by J. Allen Toyota and AGJ Systems and Networks on Super Talk 103.1 FM. Welcome to Coast View, the show that every day celebrates the people who make Coast of Mississippi such an amazing place to live work and play today is saints game we're going to be turning to our friend jeff duncan here in just a second i just want to share this with you saw it on instagram and i just thought it was really good it says gentle reminder please set standards for the people you want in your life it's not selfish it's not rude it's imperative you are allowed to determine who gets access to you you are allowed to want people in your life who make you feel light and supported you can set the standard. It's your life. Don't forget that. I love it. You have the, you have the, the, you know, you're the one who sets the standard for the people you want in your life. And too often, man, we let people in our lives. I don't care what their relationship is to you, but if they're negative and they're contributing to your unhappiness, you have a, you have a right to, to recalibrate your, your, uh, your, your expectations around those kind of people. We, we, you know, life is short. We should enjoy life. And a lot of it has to do with the people we surround ourselves with. Um, we're going to, uh, we're going to come back and we're going to ask, uh, Cal to join the conversation in a second, but before we get too much further along, let me welcome Jeff Duncan. The, uh, he's covered the saints longer than anyone else. He works for NOLA.com and the Times-Picayune. He's on the NFL Selection Committee. He's written numerous books on the Saints. He's the man, and we're lucky to have him here on Coast View every Friday. How you doing, buddy? Ricky, I'm doing great. I think the last time we talked, I said, hey, when we reconvene, we're going to be talking about a big Saints victory, and that's exactly what we're doing. It is. It is. Look, I want to get to the game here in just a second. But before we do that, we've 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 been watching carefully what's happening in New Orleans. You know, the power's back mostly for the city. The outer line areas in the region still have some significant challenges. You get down into the river parishes and the bayou parishes of, of Louisiana. And I saw a video that was done from somebody from uh, NOLA.com at the Times Picayune yesterday driving from Cocodry back north. And man, the devastation is just heartbreaking. I mean, it just has so many memories of Katrina wrapped in this, but it's been tough for those people, hasn't it, buddy? Yeah, the, the surrounding parishes, I think, are the ones that are really in the still in the throes of recovery, especially some of the the smaller communities, the fishing villages down. You mentioned Cocodry, Lafitte, Grand Isle, of course, anything along Highway One down south in the in the so-called boot. Of, of Louisiana, the tip of the boot. Uh, those areas were outside the flood protection system that we had installed here after Katrina, and they're very vulnerable, and they continue to get more vulnerable each year uh, with the coastal erosion that's, uh, you know, plaguing our, our coast. So uh, those, my heart goes out to those people. I, I was talking to Steve Gleason this week. He and his family have been going down to Lafitte, just trying to spread some inspiration, try and help out any way they can with supplies. And he said it's just heartbreaking. I mean, the entire city flooded uh, because of the levee breach down there, and they still don't have power. And I think that's reflective of a lot of communities around that area and throughout South Louisiana. Yeah, I know Steve is your dear friend, and uh, you've, you've covered his entire story for, for from the very beginning. But what an inspiration to hear that he's spending time in Lafitte. I, I spent a lot of time in Lafitte, incidentally, while I was while I was over there because I wanted to understand what it felt like, what it looked like to be 
outside the levee protection area, and they need more protection there, obviously. But what a great community. They keep getting hit over and over again. But for Steve and his situation to find time to worry about and care for a community, man, that is – this is a guy who literally is not letting any sun set on the contributions he can make in the community, is he? Well, you know, you talked earlier, Ricky, about setting a standard for your family or your people around you. I mean, that's exactly what he does. He basically wants his son, Rivers, and his daughter, Gray, uh, to become servant leaders. And he wants to educate them early on in life about what you get out of serving people in your community and you get more out of it than you give. And, uh, you know, you're right. He's a very special person. His wife, Michelle, also, uh, they've been, I think they've been down there multiple times now and it's not easy to get down there. As you mentioned that, that video, it's a serpentine navigation to get down. I mean, we're, we're, those are so vulnerable, those little communities and it's such a precarious existence they have yeah. just to get down there. It's difficult. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you, you want right. to go down, you ought to go down with them because you have this special relationship with them. You should go down with them and write about it and get to, get capture some videos from down there. Yeah. What a what an yeah. what an incredible story. Hey, also yeah. um, the sanitation issue in New Orleans, it's not widespread, but it is significant. Um, what can you say about that? Uh, it's just a mess. I mean, <laughs> pardon the pun, but it's a it's a total mess. Uh, only in New Orleans, after a, a major storm like this, it does trash removal become a do-it-yourself project, but that's what it's become for some people in certain neighborhoods in the city because of the shortage of sanitation employees and the trucks. Uh, they just haven't been able to get to all the neighborhoods. My neighborhood, when I got back, and, and I told you all last week, I mean, I, I basically spent the last week uh, in Bay St. Louis before that last Saints, uh, the Saints opener. I was in Bay St. Louis. I got back last Wednesday and my trash had been picked up. Uh, my lights were on. My internet was working. I had mail delivery. So for a lot of the little civil services that we expect in our everyday lives, some most of those have returned for me. Uh, but for un unfortunately for a lot of other people in town, it's not the case. I know people that still don't have internet or Wi-Fi. And uh, we're now we're going on three weeks after the storm. Uh, right near my house uh, at Ottoman Park, I've told you about that before. I usually go on a run every night there. It's still closed, still a number of trees down there. They don't think it's safe to have residents in the park right now because you really can't see where some of the broken branches are until they die out. So it's it's still a long way to go in the recovery. We've got a ton of debris. A lot of residents have removed debris from their houses and put it out front. So you go down any street in New Orleans, there's just piles, massive piles of storm debris that need to be removed. And I know the mayor said that's all on the way this week. Uh, they brought in trucks from all over the country to help with that removal. Well, your, your um, partner in crime over there, Mark Schlesting, has done a great job of covering all of the issues around storms and the levee protection system and those that are outside the levee protection system. I mean, what a what a talent he is. In fact, I plan to have him on Coast View soon just to talk about all of that. But um, but one of the one of the, uh, the kind of the worst case scenario was a storm taking the track that this one took. And, uh, you know, it, of course, it, 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 the, the lower parishes that we discussed, places like Laplace and Lafitte and those areas, just unbelievable challenges. But boy, the worst case scenario happened with a Category 3 taking that path. 
And the levy protection system held up really well for the city of New Orleans, which means essentially that it really escaped an unbelievably difficult scenario that could have that could have been created that makes makes the loss of power pale in comparison to what it could have been. So you're you're really lucky today to be sitting there knowing that you know the sanitation issue will get solved. You know, we you will get you will get coming back quickly and it won't be a months long recovery but a, you know a few more weeks. Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, that's what the billions of dollars, tax dollars that went into to uh, build rebuilding that and building that levy protection system, that's what it was all about. It's going to pay off in the long run multiple times over uh, because it'll save on the, the tax dollars long term. The team is going to have to invest in the community. And I agree with you. Uh, it held up very well. We didn't see any of the, the flooding like we had. Our, our issue in New Orleans has been the power outage, which has to be addressed. The infrastructure has to be rebuilt. And I think it's going to be uh, much stronger long term, but they just had to get us reconnected uh, with a kind of a jerry-rigged system to get power and get the city back online. Eventually, we'll restore that power with a new grid. Yeah, I know you will. So let's let's shift gears. Uh, why don't you come on into the conversation, Kyle? We'll pick it up here. We got a few minutes left in this session, and we'll come back over on the other side and continue the conversation. But one of the cool things about after the game is that that Sean Payton. This is the game against Green Bay and Jacksonville. That Sean Payton gave a game ball to all those people involved in creating this home field atmosphere the logistics people and all those people Kyle playing the music at the at in Jacksonville there during during the game but that was smart of him wasn't it Jeff Oh yeah I mean look he recognizes that there's more to a team than just players and coaches there's all these other staffers and uh, you know ancillary members of the organization and to put on a game it requires everybody and, and the attention to detail involved extends beyond the playing field. Uh, to create that atmosphere you're talking about, Ricky, to make it feel like a home game. And I thought it was significant that he acknowledged those people. He can be tough. I mean, you talk to people that work under him leading up to the game, they'll tell you, I mean, he drives them. He has a standard that he expects, and he's difficult to work for because he is so exacting in what he wants. But in the end, that all contributes to the success of the team. It does. And Kyle and I had a conversation with the athletic director from Gulfport, Brian Caldwell, this week, and we talked a lot more about that. But hey, Kyle, as you're back now and you know, you've kind of had the opportunity of your lingering thoughts. You looking back on Jacksonville, what stands out to you the most? You know, I think it's like Jeff was saying, it's the work ethic. And it's not just Sean Payton that expects perfection that it has a certain drive. It's everyone down from that point of the ladder all the way down, even you know, my production bosses, I've got two producers above me and it's the same attitude. We can't have any little slip because every little slip matters and you've got to be on your game. And, you know, I think the end result kind of speaks for itself. Um, the team did what they had to do on the field. And I think everybody else did what they had to do to make it a home game experience off the field. Yeah, and that, that's so it's so cool. I mean, you'll look, hey, you'll look back on that on that time in Jacksonville Kyle, and you'll say, man, was I proud to be a part of that. I mean, what a what a unique moment in our history. I mean, that's the way you're going to see it, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. We got about 30 seconds left. But yeah, I am super proud to be um, not only thought of to be brought to Jacksonville to do the game day, um, but looking back on it, yeah, super proud that I went and did the job that I did. Not just me, but our whole production team 
it took all of us to make that production room that is not New Orleans a New Orleans atmosphere. And what? So cool. We took over. (laughs) So cool. Hey, when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Kyle and Jeff. We'll see you after this. Coast View on Super Talk 103.1 is brought to you by J. Allen Toyota on I-10 Exit 38 Gulfport. See all the incredible inventory at allentoyota.com. And remember, when you think Toyota, think J. Allen Toyota. His love for the coast is why he's here. It's Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. I'm so happy to have my friend Jeff Duncan from the NOLA.com and the Times Picayune, a place where I knew I know New Orleans well. I spent some time there. Got got to be really good friends with Jeff. He was terrific, and uh, we're just privileged. I'm honored to have Jeff join us every Friday to talk about what's going on behind the scenes with the Saints, et cetera. And then you know what? I mean, I got the best producer in the world, and Kyle Curley. I talk about him all the time. He's just terrific, and you know he gives you another sort of behind the scenes look at what's going on, especially when you think about moving this entire operation over to Jacksonville and creating a home field advantage uh just awesome awesome stuff to talk about but hey kyle before we sign off with you do you have a question of jeff yeah i noticed this week they signed kenny stills to the practice squad is there going to be any more into that is that just more of a leadership thing or are they really looking for him to produce and be on the field this weekend yeah that's a good question kyle and uh, i don't think he'll be on the field this week i think that was mainly a um, kind of an insurance policy because of the COVID outbreak among the offensive coaching staff. Uh, one of the coaches that was affected there was the wide receivers coach. And the, one of the players, of course, was Michael Thomas, who is right now not, not available to play. So there was a little bit of concern, I think, that the wide receiver room would be affected and the Saints could lose a couple players to infection. So they wanted to bring in a veteran player that knows their offensive system. Of course, Kenny Stills was a draft pick of the Saints, knows their offense, somebody that could be immediately inserted in in case of an emergency where they lost a bunch of receivers uh, to the COVID outbreak. Fortunately, it doesn't look like that's going to happen, but he's still eligible for the practice squad. So I think they'll keep him around. Now, do you, I'm sorry, Ricky, but do you? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. You happen to know the percentage? I know the percentage is pretty high for the team, but how? how what percentage? It's kind of is it eighty-eight to ninety-eight percent of the team that's vaccinated? No, I think it's I think it's right at a hundred now. I mean, I know that all the coaches are vaccinated, so we had six coaches, one nutritionist, and then Mike Thomas, the player, all tested positive, but all of them had been vaccinated. So it's a little bit of a, a I guess, a lesser protocol now. They just have to have two negative tests in a row, and they could rejoin the team after five days away. Uh, that's the protocol. So I actually think uh, they'll be able to coach in this game on Sunday. Uh, right now it's affecting them in game planning and in practice. Uh, but if there is a silver lining to this outbreak, it's, it's because it happened to the offensive side of the ball where you have Sean Payton basically running the show and Pete Carmichael, who was not part of this. Both those veteran coaches – they know this offense like the back of their hand and can coach every position group. So if it was going to happen to one side of the ball, it was good to happen to the offense. 
Well, that's cool. Of course, good old Kyle, man. Leave it up to Kyle. He's gonna he's gonna ask you the the important questions for, for sure. So let's take a step back. <clears throat> if you were a betting man, Jeff, and you're not, you you knew a lot about what was going to happen in Jacksonville. You talked to us about it on the show. You said this defense could be scary. This team could be scary. If if you said over and over again that if Jameis can manage the game and not make big mistakes, which he had been prone to do in Tampa, and then for the past two years he's been in this football rehab program to learn to think a different way. But if he could do that, this team, man, we could have a long run on this team. And, boy, coming out of the gate, you knew things that even the the, the, line, the, the folks uh, establishing the line in Las Vegas didn't know. We could all be rich if we had put our money where your mouth was. Well, look, it was a perfect storm. I think the Saints were flying under the radar uh, because of the retirement of Drew Brees and some of the offseason attrition they had with some key players. And I think Green Bay, having just played in the NFC Championship game the last couple of years and the 13-3 and record, I think they're a little overrated. So I think both those factors – combined with the fact that the Saints had to move the game and play on a neutral site, as Kyle mentioned. I mean, uh, I think all those things contributed to people thinking Green Bay was going to be the better team, and I just never felt that way. I really felt like the Saints were, were a really tough matchup for Green Bay. Uh, both of their lines, I felt like they were much better than Green Bay's, and it played out exactly that way. The Saints avoided mistakes. Green Bay made a bunch of mistakes, and it just kind of snowballed on them. If they played that game again in a couple of weeks, it might be a different game. I think it would be much closer. But in that game, the way it played out, uh, everything went the Saints' way. Well, you know, you've done a good job at helping us understand why it's important to control things at the line of scrimmage, both on the defensive side and on the offensive side. And in this in this particular game, Boy, did it play out on the defensive side. I mean, they couldn't run the ball. On, on our offensive side of the ball, we were getting four and five yards on first down. And it's got to be demoralizing in both cases. Yeah, and it's why the Saints so heavily invest in the offensive and defensive lines. It's, it's, it still amazes me more teams don't do it because football remains a game, a big man's game, and the, who controls the line of the scrimmage more often than not wins the game. And the Saints dominated both lines of scrimmage. And you're right, Green Bay, this is something I felt very strongly about, that Green Bay was not going to be able to run the ball in the Saints. No one I've seen the last year and a half has been able to run the ball in the Saints. Their, their run defense is so good. I think it's the strength of the team, the ultimate strength. And that just leads to everything else for the Saints. It, it allows them to get in those good, favorable, down and distance situations defensively where Dennis Allen can scheme it up and I think the, the, the secondary played so well, even with the young rookie, Paulson Adebo, at corner, getting tested. Uh, because they were in these favorable, uh, you know, identifiable passing situations, they can kind of scheme up and protect the young corner and do a lot of things. It's when they, they were dictating things, whereas they weren't getting dictated too. And I think that all starts on the early downs and stopping the run. You know, staying on the defensive scheme for just a second, um, you know, Debo did play a good game. And, I mean, and you know what? They they asked a lot of him because they were playing man-on-man a lot. If not – I mean, were they playing man-on-man the whole game? I mean, they, they, it seemed to me yeah. that that's – And they, they mixed up a little bit, Ricky. But they, they do a lot of mixing coverages, and they'll even do some coverages so sophisticated that 
one half of the field's playing zone, the other half's playing man-to-man. They'll have coverage over the top. And we saw that happen on the long interception that Marcus Williams had where he was in just a deep zone and peeled back. Really a terrible decision by Aaron Rodgers. I don't know what he was doing on that. But um, they just had him bamboozled. I mean, he looked bewildered throughout that game, and it seemed like Green Bay did not have an adjustment or an answer for what the Saints were doing. Wow. It was just so so much to talk about. I mean, it was interesting, for example, I mean, we did get a bunch of injuries in this, in this and we'll come back to the injury uh, list in just a second. But Marshawn Lattimore, suddenly he kind of vanishes. You know, you say, uh-oh, where's Marshawn? Because it just, you know, you said this before, it's going to be a little bit iffy if we have to start getting into the depth. And, you know, and, and one thing we had to get into as it related to the depth this past weekend, at least for a series or so, was understanding what that death looked like when Marshawn and Lattimore had to go get a cast put on his hand. And, but then to come back and play the way he did, and that was really impressive. Yeah, I agree with you. And uh, knowing that he did not have a long-term contract uh, signed at that point was also, I think, impressive that he was selfish, selfless for the team. And he makes a difference when he's out there. He's by far their best corner. He's going to be out uh, for a little while, but I don't think he's going to be out as long as people think. You know, when you have a fracture in your thumb, they can protect that. I've seen players play with those kind of things. It's going to take them a little while. They're going to have to let it mend, but they can use protective casts and a splint, and he's not going to probably intercept a ton of balls with that, but he can still knock balls down and I think tackle uh, effectively. So I think he'll be back sooner rather than later. Uh, and they need him back. I mean, Bradley Roby does come back this week after the trade from Houston. A veteran corner has started most of his career, so the timing's good for that. If you're going to lose Lattimore, it's good to have Roby coming back. Boy, is it good. Again, you know, you're just seeing the speed on the team, the Saints have focused, as you said so many times, on character, intelligence, you know, obviously skill, but speed. Speed's a big part of this team. You see people like uh, like Demarius and Quan come in there and just all over the darn field. Quan literally, after having a torn Achilles, came back into this game and was all over the darn place. I mean, that's super impressive. Yeah, and it starts up front with the defensive line because the way the Saints play their scheme, they want that defensive line to control things and free up Mario Davis and Quan Alexander to use their athleticism to pursue the ball, and it worked to perfection in that game. Uh, the, the Packers just could not get anything going. They're too athletic. And, and we also have to throw in there C.J. Gardner-Johnson because even though he's technically a safety and a, a DB, he's critical for them in run support, and he's also extremely athletic and not afraid to stick his nose in there, as are the Saints' corners. I thought Paulson Debo showed uh, the athleticism he has. Uh, so it's another hat tip to Jeff Ireland, who's – been responsible for bringing in all this talent on that side of the ball. They really made huge improvement there. But in, okay, so I, I think I saw Quan's name on the on the injury report. Of course, Marshawn Lattimore was there. I think then I see Gardner Johnson's name on there as well. So what are the other key injuries on the on the defensive side? We got less than a minute in this segment. Well, the big one is Marcus Davenport. I mean, he's got a, tor- a strained pectoral muscle. He's going to be out, and he's their best defensive end right now. There's no question about it. He had a big sack. So. He's good, but the good news, he's not out for the season. He's out for probably a handful of weeks. 
They thought, Ricky, he was done for the year when they initially saw the injury. So that's good news. Uh, and then the other big one, of course, Eric McCoy went out the center. Uh, after five plays, he went out. Cesar Ruiz slid over. They performed fine on the offensive line. But that's a matchup, and we can talk about it after the break. That's a matchup to watch because of the, the attrition they've had there going against this Carolina defense. For sure, we'll do that. We'll continue the conversation with Jeff Duncan from NOLA.com and the Times-Picayune on this Friday. It's the Saints Friday here on Coast View. We'll be back after this break. Listen live or on demand and watch episodes of Coast View on your laptop, desktop, or on your phone or tablet by going to supertalkmsgulfcoast.com. And now, it's Coast View with Ricky Matthews. Brought to you by J. Allen Toyota and AGJ Systems and Networks on Supertalk 103.1 FM. Welcome back to Coast View. We have Jeff Duncan from NOLA.com and the Times Speaking in. We're going to talk about the offense here in just a second, but I saw a, saw a story on NOLA.com and the Times Picky Unit about Mike Haas fulfilling his uh, dream in the radio booth. And we had talked a lot about whether he was going to be the guy. Now he's the guy. I didn't get a chance to listen to him, but uh, some friends did. And they said he did a great job. What 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 kind, what kind are you hearing uh, about Mike Haas? Yeah, I heard the same thing. And you know, I spent some time with Mike before the game uh, in the stadium. And, I mean, he had some butterflies, which is to be expected. I mean, he's a veteran broadcaster, but this was his first official a game as the Saints play-by-play announcer. And he, of course, is a longtime friend of Jim Henderson, has great respect for Jim, and he knows the platform uh, that that he has and understands how important it is to Saints fans uh, to be able to convey that because so many of them still listen to the game. And I thought he did a great job. I heard a bunch of outtakes from it. Of course, uh, I, I don't listen to it during the game, but I do go back and listen to some of the outtakes. And uh, I can tell he's, he's really into it, very passionate and I think going to continue to do a great job. Okay. Let's talk about the game for a little bit. Let's start with Sean Payton. We talked a little bit about him giving the game ball to the people who were involved in the logistics and making it feel like a home atmosphere. I mean, what a massive undertaking that was. But, man, you see him in the in the, in the the uh, post-game press conference, and it's a rare moment for him because he – was really struggling with defining anything he didn't like about the game. I mean, he just said I mean, it's one of the most complete games. I don't know, maybe ever, but it was in all three phases of the game. He was just thrilled. I mean, as a coach, rarely do you find a moment where everything seems to hit simultaneously with all these question marks and it all playing out positively. Sean was a happy camper after that game, wasn't he? Yeah, he, and he, that's rare. It's rare. We saw the celebration of the locker room afterward, and they were celebrating uh, pretty intensely, which they should after a big win like that. It doesn't happen that way very often. Peyton even talked about it. He said most games in this league, I think, are the average or is a one-score uh, differential in score. So uh, to have one like that where you're able to, uh, you know, really kind of take your foot off the gas in the four, whole fourth quarter, uh, especially against a good opponent, it's very rare. And I didn't see much either. I watched the game now a third time. Uh, I mean, you could make, I guess, some – you could pick some nits with some of Jameis's, uh accuracy. Uh, some of the balls that he even completed were very difficult catches that shouldn't have been as hard because he maybe sailed to throw high here or there. 
Uh, but the, the the cleanness and the crispness with the execution, I thought was remarkable considering the Saints lost their last preseason game to the Hurricane. I mean, it got canceled, so they only had two preseason games. They had to evacuate to Dallas. Uh, they didn't have uh, you know the the same amount of preparation time that other teams in the league have had. Uh, and I think it's uh, you know a tribute to their leadership of their of their players and their coaches that they were able to execute at such a high uh, standard, uh, considering everything they've been through. You know, we'll, we'll stick with, the, obviously, the offense and talk about Jameis for a second. But one of the things that was interesting about Jameis, well, first of all, right off the bat, that this, I call it the f- uh, football rehab program he's been for, in for, you know, going on two years now, get, getting his, as Jeff Duncan discusses it, a PhD in offense. But as he's been doing that, uh, I think a lot of focus has been, as you have pointed out m- numerous times, on not freaking out, not making the mistake. And one of the things I noticed is one of the thing, great things about having a great offensive line is that he had time. But you didn't, you didn't get the sense that he was troubled about his progressions at all. You watched it almost unfold in like slow motion. <laughs> it was. I mean, he had pretty much control over the progressions, and if it wasn't there, I mean, they, they even noted it. You know, obviously, the, the the those who were broadcasting the the, the game noted that. Ben, that was one of the smartest out-of-bound throws I've ever seen because that's not what Jameis would have done in the past. But it was true that he had time, and because he had learned that offense and spent so much time on that offense, it seemed that the progressions worked the way they were supposed to. Yeah, and that's a big part of the Saints' offense. Sean Payton talked about it this week. I mean, almost every pass pattern the Saints run, and I've written about this in in the Payton and Breeze book, they have somebody going deep, a long route. It may not even be the primary target, but it's just that they're going to stretch the defense vertically. They almost always affect the second level of defense on intermediate routes, and then they have the shorter routes, which are usually the check downs, the the drop-offs for the quarterback, in case they can't uh, go down the field. And uh, they challenge the defense on all three levels every time they drop back to pass. And that takes some time. And it takes some time for the quarterback to go through those progressions. That's why you have to have a very good offensive line. And the Saints dominated. I mean, there was that one play where he had the ball for over seven seconds in the pocket and then ended up throwing the ball away, which was a good decision. And he talked about that after the game. I thought he played decision-making-wise almost perfectly, and then showed his legs, too. The first drive, he scrambled twice. I think 26 yards he gained. A key third down he converted, showing that mobility that adds an element to the offense as well that the Saints haven't had. You know, you talk about the uh, the layers, you know, during the team. We're stretching the defense out and whatever, but I think that was on display as good as it can be on display on that fourth down play, that screen pass to Juwan Johnson, the way he had, I mean, they had everybody running down the field and some intermediate, you just knew that he was going to do some kind of intermediate pass or whatever. And then he dumps it off to Juwan Johnson and he goes and does what he did. But man, what a masterful play call that was. Yeah. And that's a classic Sean Payton call. I knew it in the press box that he had something he liked. He wasn't going to go for it on fourth and seven. Uh, in that situation, unless he loved the play, he got exactly the defensive look he wanted. I think they called a timeout. Just, I think they went to the line of scrimmage, saw what Green Bay was giving them defensively, called a timeout. I think he felt extremely confident it was going to be wide open. And 
those are the kind of play calls you get from that guy. I mean, he's, I think, one of the best that's ever done it. And that was a huge play in the game. And I think it's just demoralizing to the defense. They can't get off the field. And the next thing you know, you're down 21 to 3, uh, 17 to 3, I think, in that situation. And uh, the game was pretty much out of hand by halftime. Juwan Johnson watched the games from the practice squad last year. It was extremely troubling to him to have to do that. You said before the season started that this is more than an experiment, that this kid being switched over to tight end was a really smart move. And what this game indicated, number one, he's a smart player, but number two, he's not just tall. He has really good hands. Oh, my gosh. I mean, he went up for a couple of balls. I mean, both touchdown passes he caught were great catches. Uh, Jameis Winston, the first one, did a great job of putting it up where only he could go get it. And that was a strength of his coming out of college. I mean, he was a a pretty high-level recruit. I think he started his career at Penn State, ended up at Oregon. Uh, But he was a highly recruited player, and he didn't have huge numbers in college. But that's another credit to Jeff Ireland and the scouting staff finding him, developing him within the coaching staff, and then moving him to tight end, which a lot of teams, as he came out of college, thought he would be eventually a tight end in the league uh, because of his size. He's not tremendously fast. Uh, So I think he's got a bright future there. There's no doubt. You know what was interesting? During his uh, post-game discussion, again, young guy, seems very mature. He talked about going to Jameis' crib in Tampa and practicing during the summer and that that what they executed last Sunday was just executing what they had worked all summer on to do that time that that rigor that they put into practice in that way and during the offseason man it's paying dividends isn't it yeah and that's that goes back to Jameis Winston understanding the opportunity at hand and taking advantage of it maximizing everything he could to make sure he was successful once he got in this position and look, we got a long way to go. I mean, we got one game in, but it certainly paid off in that opener. I mean, there wasn't much Green Bay did defensively to stop the Saints. They scored on six of their first seven possessions in the first game of the year. That's pretty remarkable. There's not much to complain about. And I thought we mentioned earlier, just the way he managed the game, I think his poise, his command of the huddle, all the things you look for in a field general, I thought he conveyed. And I think he learned a lot of that from Drew Brees, and he said that before. And more importantly, I, I loved what Jameis said to Albert Breer, a colleague of mine at Sports Illustrated, who wrote about the game uh, on SI.com. Jameis didn't talk about himself after the game. He said, look, all I had to do was manage the game. The defense was so dominant. Our running game was so dominant. It wasn't about him. And, and I just love to hear that from him because uh, it shows maturity that he gets it at this stage of his career. And we haven't mentioned Alvin Kamara. I mean, it's so easy to take that incredible man for granted, not just his leadership skills, not just his intelligence, not just his ability to put this game in perspective to say, it's just a game. We got to improve. We got to go to the next game. You're only as good as your last performance. This guy is smart as hell, and he played a hell of a game. Yeah, he made some things happen when there wasn't really a lot there. Uh, That's what he's done throughout his career. I thought the, the biggest play he made was that short, I think it was a third and two play that he caught. That was one of those Jameis Winston passes he'd like to have back. He made it very difficult for, uh, for Alvin Kamara to make a catch on the play. And he still maintained his balance and was able to dive and extend the ball to convert that third down and keep that drive alive. That's a huge play. It doesn't show up in the stat book. 
a two-yard gain, but to convert that, uh, I thought was a testament to his incredible athleticism. And it shows how smart he is because in the post game, yes. in this post game, we're at the end of the segment. We'll pick it up on the other side, but we, it shows how. He, in the midst of all of that trying to get control of the ball, he still had the wherewithal to look and see where the sticks were. And he reached out to the sticks. He was literally thinking that while he was still trying to control the ball. What an amazing play. What an ama- That's how you win games. That's how you win Super Bowls. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Jeff Dunn. Talking to the people that help make the coast such a unique place to live. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. It's Jeff Duncan Day <laughs> on Coast View. Jeff Duncan, who's covered the Saints longer than anyone else, we're honored to have him here. And Jeff, I hear from a lot of people who just enjoy this show. They say, man, I enjoy when you talk Saints with Jeff Duncan, and I appreciate you joining us. So one of one of them, I mentioned him a few minutes ago, but the athletic director for Gulfport, um, Brian Caldwell, I don't think he ever misses a show. So it's great to have. In fact, I'm going to invite him on one day because it was interesting watching, you know, hearing his perspective as an athletic director, former coach, you know, observing the game. And he said that he's never seen a more complete game ever. I mean, just ever. And I mean, this, I mean, he's not trying, he's not guy for known for overstatements. That's just the way he felt about it. So anyway, coming back to Alvin Kamara for just a second, you know, a lot of players make that play, but they don't reach out and, and, and in the midst of trying to control the ball, know that there's the sticks. I'm going to put, I'm going to put the ball out there and we're going to get a first down. That's the way you win Super Bowls. But as you were pointing out during the break, this is not by chance. This thing is coached. Yeah, it's a huge part of Sean Payton's uh, practices. They go through situational drills all the time where he'll just stop practice and give the offense a situation. It might be a minute 17 left. Uh, we're down by six, and we're on the 42-yard line right hash mark, and he expects them to execute. Uh, in the two-minute offense there. The defense is on the other side, having to make a stop there. They do that throughout training camp, throughout the offseason. It's a point of emphasis for him. He wants his team to be situationally aware of the game situation at all times. And we see it play out on Sundays. It, It amazes me that more teams don't do it because it really is. Sean's smart about this. Most games are decided by one or two possessions, usually one possession, and it comes down to that situational football, and we see the Saints excel in that over and over. And you're right, Ricky, it's a testament to the intelligence, the football IQ of this roster, and that starts with uh, the player procurement phase of, of bringing in players. Wow, just incredible. You know, the whole organization has to be hitting on every cylinder from the logistics people who make Jacksonville work to all of that. And speaking of that, they're still, they're still practicing in Dallas. How, long, how much longer do you think that's going to be? Well, the plan is uh, to play the next two games on the road. They play, of course, this weekend in Carolina. They come back. They play week three up in Boston or Foxborough against the Patriots. The plan is to come back to New Orleans from that trip. In other words, their last day in Dallas will probably be the Saturday before that game or the Friday. They'll sleep. They'll get up, go through a walkthrough on Saturday, fly to, to Boston, play the game, and then they'll fly back to New Orleans. And every expectation is to play that week four game against the Giants in the Superdome as originally scheduled. 
Yeah, yeah, but you know it's interesting because I, I mark my words. They'll look at things like the sanitation issue and they'll say, "Okay, does any of the players have to deal with that? We don't want anything to mess with them. So if they have to go into a situation where there might be a stench in the air and they might have to be reminded and adjust too much, I, they're not going to put them in a situation where they have to adjust too much, don't you think? No, that that's a top priority. Mickey Loomis came back here on Tuesday uh, to New Orleans. He was out at the facility Tuesday and Wednesday morning. Facility is in great shape. I mean, there's no no issue there. Uh, it's mainly the concern of your staff, the players and coaches. Are you going to have 95% of the team back with power and and working internet and trash pickup and all the civil services and only 5% still struggling? Uh, they don't want that, but they feel pretty confident by that time uh, everyone will be back in, in, in good working order and the living conditions will be fine. So what can we expect this weekend? Well, I think it's going to be a closer game than I think people expect. I think it's going to be a low-scoring defensive game. Uh, I saw the total on the game is 44.5 total points by both teams. That's the lowest in the league uh, for this weekend's series. And I think that's attributable to the fact that Carolina does not have much offensive firepower. It's their second game with Sam Darnold, quarterback. Last week, Ricky, Christian McCaffrey, their great running back, they had 51 total touches as a team on offense. That's catches and runs, and he had 30 of them. He had over half of the offense, uh, offensive touches of that offense. So we know what, what Carolina's going to do. They're going to feed the ball to their Pro Bowl running back, and it's going to be a great matchup between him and Kamara because I think they're the two most versatile backs in the league. But Carolina's got a good defense. I don't think the Saints are going to struggle running the balls effectively against Carolina as they did against Green Bay. And so I think this game could be, you know, in the low 20s. And I really think Carolina is going to really struggle to move the ball and score against the Saints. Yeah, you know, it might be a situation where McCaffrey, and we've seen this many times before, where he's stopped, stopped, stops, and then runs for 35 yards. <laughs> uh, probably not going to happen against this thing. I don't think you break big ones against this defense. Don't you agree with that? No, I don't think so, Ricky. Not against this Saints defense. You know, we talked earlier about the athleticism. Uh, all 11 guys can run on this defense. Even Malcolm Jenkins, the old man, and Cam Jordan. So I, I don't think they're going to be able to get very many big plays. We saw Green Bay. They, they had one big play right before halftime. Uh, yeah. I think Saints defense will control this up front. But I think it's going to be tougher. Things aren't going to be as easy this week. They just It just doesn't happen that way in the NFL. It doesn't happen that way. Just when you start getting your chest sticking out, they start making some mistakes. So, you know, Saints team is a better team than people think it is, but they're not perfect. So we may see teams begin to exploit wherever they see their weaknesses. We'll see. That's the, that's the game of football. Jeff Duncan, thank you so much for spending time with us, buddy. Yeah, thanks, Ricky. Hopefully next week we're talking about a 2-0 start. Oh, my goodness. I hope so. I hope so. Anyway, have a great weekend, everybody, and we'll see you on Monday. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.